the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 434 for Sunday, January 27th, 2013. And welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in your questions, you send in your tips, you send in your cool stuff found. We do our darndest to answer your questions, share your tips, share your and our cool stuff found. And together, the goal is we all have some fun while learning new stuff. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And I'd like to echo what Dave said is that it's all about you. And uh, this is John Efron here in Fairfield, Connecticut. Rather chilly. and uh, <laughs> It's supposed to warm up just in time for us to head to California, which uh, I guess I'm doing tomorrow. I don't guess. I'm Well, I plan to fly tomorrow, and I believe that that will happen. So, uh, I'm Oh, right, because you, uh, because you have to do some practice for the, uh, the world-renowned Mac All-Star Band. That's right. The, uh, which will be playing on Friday. Friday night, I believe. Friday night at Cirque du Mac. There will be a live stream of that event. We will have more details that will be posted. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We've never done that, have uh, we? No, we have not. Not not intentionally, anyway. I don't know. Oh, I mean, wow. Yeah. I mean, there have been bootleg recordings that I've mm-hmm. seen, which are always enjoyable, but um, an official streaming feed? Cool. Yeah. 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 So we'll have some some of the details of that posted up to TMO later this week and we'll we'll tweet them out to our, our Twitter feed, which is Mac Geek Gab and also Mac Observer. So follow nice. those. Yeah. If you're not able to make Macworld Expo, um, that's one way to f- see what Cirque, well, see part of what Cirque is all about. You really kind of got to be there to fully experience everything. Right. But, and if you are there, I think, Dave, if uh, if uh, people see either either one of us uh, physically, we, we probably have a ticket or two. That's to, right. To bestow upon you. To, That's right. To attend this event. I, I am certain we have tickets. We know or at least we know people that have tickets. And that's, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, I love it. You know, I remember we were doing our recollection of, you know, uh, uh, Macworld memories. And uh, Dave, I think this is my. Uh, I think almost 20th show because in the past there were Macworld shows, uh, multiple ones per year in, in other locations other than California. But uh, I can't believe 20 shows. Yeah. And that's probably, probably been right. more than I, or well, yeah, well, no, again, they I had think... the Boston and the New York shows, but I think we started around 1998, 99, I think is when we started uh, uh, attending these. Yeah. It might've even been before that. I, I remember going I remember I would I would fly to Boston at, from because I was living in Texas. So it was after 95. But no, it wasn't 98. I mean, we definitely were going in 98. But we went in 95 or 96 was when we started going to Macworld, both on both coasts. Um, it, I would I would fly from Austin to one place or the other and meet you there. Either you would drive to Boston or. But we went even before that. When I was working at Citibank, we went to Macworld Expo, John. I was. <laughs> I was because I remember and, and I had Apple a, Fest and, well Apple Fest. We went to as, as when we were relatively kids. Yeah. Um, and we would go to Apple Fest in Boston. But but I remember one time you were working for one company. I was working for Citibank and uh, we'd both convinced our, uh, our our respective superiors that we needed to go. And and so I had a I was able to get the hotel room 
and you got the rental car. And, uh, and because I got like the last hotel room in Boston, remember I had that <laughs> that bi level suite at the top of uh, I forget what hotel it was. <laughs> I mean, we had a phone. You could call me from downstairs. No, not only a phone, but there there was a phone in the bathroom. So yeah. there were two levels, and so we could both be in uh, the boys' room and call each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think we did that just just. For the hilarity, I'd call. So we did the it so we could bathroom phone to be like, Dave. Hi, I'm calling from downstairs. I like to know how it is upstairs. <laughs> That's exactly what you said to me. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, that was a great hotel. We did it so that we could tell this story. I mean, we didn't know we'd have this podcast. We didn't even know <laughs> Mac Observer would exist at that point in time. But uh, but oh, and the hilarity that happened in the hotels after hours. We won't even mention that. Oh, boy. oh, especially at Apple Fest. That was crazy. <laughs> that now that now Apple Fest, folks, was the show that happened. Um, it, it was, you know, for Apple twos. Right. So this goes way back. Um, and we were going to that when I was going to that with you when I was in high school. So, you know, I'll date myself here, which is fine. Probably 87, I think, was when we started going to that. Um, yeah, probably 87, 88, maybe. Um, we started going to Apple Fest and uh, in Boston at the Heinz Convention Center in Boston. We stayed at the mm-hmm. mid the Midtown Hotel. And anytime I'm in Boston and I see that hotel, I'm like, oh, that place. No, no. <laughs> yeah, that was always a little crazy. Yeah. 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 Anyway, we got a show to do, my friend. So let's. Uh, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll build up more memories and uh, hopefully some of you uh, will see you there and we'll build more. Yeah. But- Actually, you know, while we're on the subject, I will spit out where I'm going to be, where we're both going to be this week, uh, just in case you're there and and you're hearing this. Uh, Thursday at 6 o'clock p.m., all these times are local in in San Francisco for what I believe are obvious reasons. Uh, Thursday at 6 p.m. Pacific time, uh, I'm doing a five-minute segment of the rapid fire session. I think there's eight or ten of us that are doing little snippets, and I'm doing tips on extending mail using extensions, third party extensions to make mail better. So three of those, I'm going to try and cram into five minutes and I, I think I've got the timing, right? So we'll, I, you know, I always like to challenge myself. So that's, that's that one on Friday at two Bring o'clock. Your coffee. Yeah, that's right. On, on Friday at two o'clock, uh, I am doing a session about, uh, you know, we're all stuck. Well, in every home, at least one of us is stuck being the home network administrator. And so we'll go through quite a few things there that some of the stuff that, of course, you've heard on the show, but some stuff eh, perhaps not that uh, that you might want to know if you're if you're managing your network in your house. Then Friday night at eight o'clock p.m. Pacific Standard Time is when Cirque du Max starts. The band probably goes on about nine for those of you that want to watch the stream. So that's nine p.m. Pacific midnight Eastern. Uh, I'll let you do the rest of the math because I'll screw it up. and I don't want to do that. And then Saturday, finally, John and I are doing Mac Geekab right on the show floor, not upstairs on the live level, separate from the show floor. We are right on the show floor doing our podcast. There'll be a little booth uh, that you can come to and, and we're going to have uh, we're going to have I think we might even have some stuff to give away, John, uh, but we'll certainly be doing Stump the Geek. Outstanding. Yeah. Yeah. So bring your questions and, and we'll we'll record that and it'll be released on the stream just like every other podcast we do. Uh, but uh, but. If you want to be part of the live studio audience, come on down. And then on and then Saturday night we we leave on the red eye, which is, I guess isn't all that important, unless you happen to be the person that's sitting next to John or I. In which case, 
may we both get some good sleep. Ready to go to Matt, my friend? I'm going to Matt. And Matt writes us and says, hey, Dave and John. Or Dave slash John. But I am new to the Mac revolution. Welcome, comrade. And have recently transferred from PC over to the new MacBook Pro 15-inch Retina. I'm loving it, and I'm not entirely sure why I didn't do it earlier. But anyway, love the podcast. and was wondering if you could possibly feature one or two or all of my questions. And he had two, and I'm going to entertain one of them. It's the second one. And is, what is the best way to remove apps from the Mac? When I say remove apps, I mean remove apps and all the background luggage that is associated with the app that may be left behind if the app is not removed correctly. Please note that I am what I describe as a standard computer user. By this, I mean that I don't code or delve into the background of my machine. I love it too much to kill it at such a young age. <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. Great. Okay. And uh, it, and I would say that probably uh, Matt's uh, Windows background uh, has made him uh, cautious is, uh, in that uh, no computer is immune from uh, uh, being disabled <laughs> if, if you do something even though well-intentioned. And my recommendation, Dave, was, so, so I guess first it, it just brings up a, de- a general discussion about removing things on the Mac. And I would say for the most part, uh, Apple installed programs or things that you get through the uh, or Apple programs uh, typically clean up after themselves pretty well. But other applications, I would say, tend to not do that because either they're not using the Apple installer mechanism, and that's actually a general topic. If people are using the Apple installer mechanism, then the, the pieces that are needed to remove an app are not there. Uh, and I think we talked about this in the last show, but there's a receipts directory, which which kind of keeps a record of what was done installing something. And it can be used to help uninstall something. Yeah, but the receipts directory typically is only used for Apple installed software. Third parties don't put anything or shouldn't right, right. put anything in the receipts directory. Right. So because the problem here is that even though there is a standard installer, not all of them put all of the pieces required to do a proper uninstall in the right place. Or at least that's been my observation. Uh, one thing that always works because of the way Apple uh, packages things is that they will um, put something in what's called, well, yeah, a uh, package, <laughs> which is uh, in the application directory. And typically, if you throw an application away, you're going to get rid of most of the pieces. But here's where the problem is, I think, a lot of times, is when you chuck something from the applications folder, it doesn't necessarily get rid of the uh Unix underpinnings, uh, and there are a number of directories, uh, I think three of them for the most part, off the top of my head here, and uh, talked about before, talking about them again, but there's um, launch daemons, launch agents, and startup items. And these are three places where applications can put scripts that will start up other things. And a lot of times, even though you remove an app, these will not be removed. Now, the programs that I've worked with, Dave, and I, I'd, I'd love to hear your suggestion, but the ones that I've worked with, so... And, and I did a survey a while ago, and these guys, uh, you know, keep improving their product here. But I would say uh, a commercial option, the best commercial option that I've seen is something called App Delete. Uh, now, they also have a, a light version called App Delete Lite. Um, and that's one that I saw that found the most nooks, uh, dug into the nooks and crannies and found the things that were buried in the system that uh, other uninstallers would not get rid of. And then the other one is App Cleaner. Uh, which uh, last I saw was a free option. Um, 
And I guess to wrap this up, though, I would say a lot of times just because something's not removed, uh, I'm not sure how much harm it'll do. Uh, some apps do. Uh, again, if they do the the automatic launch thing and they're they're sitting in the background continually trying to do something that's never going to happen, maybe that's bad as far as wasting time. But um, well, I guess I'll hand it to you, Dave. Yeah, I guess that, <laughs> that, yeah. that's my thread on this. So uh, Mac OS X does not do it properly and there are tools to help you. And uh, what do you found? Yeah, I, I will correct myself. Actually, uh, third parties, some third parties do put stuff in the receipts folder, but not all of them do. So uh, that's not necessarily a reliable place to look for for things from from anybody. But Apple, Apple does consistently put stuff there. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. It coming from the Windows world, you're not likely to run into quite as many um Issues with what we tend to refer to here as cruft, all the stuff that apps leave behind. Uh, in fact, a lot of apps don't use installers at all. And you just drag the app to the applications folder. And what's different here about the Mac is applications are not just one piece. They're actually folders uh, better referred to as packages, but technically just folders uh, that the operating system sees a little bit differently. And inside there is a lot of stuff that the apps need. And many apps only use stuff that is inside their folders. The one thing they might leave behind is something in uh, application support or now in containers, which are both inside your library folder. If they need to save data locally or perhaps a preference file, which is uh, again, either inside containers, if it's sandboxed or in, um, in uh, uh, library preferences, if it's not sandboxed, but for the most part, yeah, there, there's there's not a whole lot of apps that need to install extensions or modify uh, system files or things like that, like we get in Windows with the registry and 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 all of that stuff. So, yeah. And in, in fact, if an app came from the Mac App Store, you can be certain that uh, if you remove two pieces of it, it is gone. And one of those pieces is the application in the applications folder. That's number one. Number two is if you go into uh, your library folder, which you can get to by holding down the option key while going to the go menu and choosing library, go into the library folder, go to containers. Uh, that is where everything that is sandboxed, which is now by definition, anything new in the Mac app store. Uh, if you delete the folder in there, that's associated with the app, that stuff is now gone. So that's um that, that is one thing that's handy about the Mac App Store. And I'll throw one other piece of software out here, John, and that is Hazel. Hazel actually does a whole lot more than this. But one of the things it does is it watches when you install apps and also when you remove them and it runs in the background. And as you delete an app from the applications folder and throw it in the trash, Hazel will pop up and say, hey, you're removing that app. Here's all these other files that I know to be related to that app. Want me to delete those too, or should we leave those in place because you're going to reinstall the app again? And uh, and that's a really handy thing. So Hazel is uh, is what we got there. And on that, I'm good. Outstanding. Okay. Um, you want to take number two too, Joe? Number two as well. Also, yeah. Tom hold on here. All right. <laughs> 
technical difficulties. Now I, I highlighted all of the files in my folder here and included a sound file and now it's playing it back to me and that's very annoying. So. Oh, do you like to hear that sound? You want me to play you a different sound? Should we get, uh, I mean, we can, you know, we've got all kinds of sounds if we, no. if we need them, you know, I mean, we can, no, we can do for, this, uh, right? Outstanding. You just let me know when you're ready. V, we'll... VG, let me get VG. I think you're ready, right, John? Right, John. I'm just going to double click on it. Here we go. Okay. I am ready. Are you ready? Oh, oh, yeah. For me to be ready, Dave? We're very ready. Great. All right. So, from VG, as best as I can tell, that's the best uh, designation here. Hey, guys, I have an early 2011 MacBook Pro running Lion. I only use it for recording audio with GarageBand. I'm having a problem with the mail program. If I run the mail program, it doesn't load my messages. It hangs until I close it from the menu up top. Then when I close it, the window disappears. The menu shows the program still running and it's highlighted. I'm able to drop down the options to try to close it once again. Unfortunately, the quit mail option is not clickable. After I click anywhere in the listed options, the menu shows the finder again. All seems fine until I try shutting down the system or restarting it. I get a message saying the application mail canceled restart to try again, quit mail and choose restart from the Apple menu. I end up having to press command option and escape to bring up a force close window. I choose to force quit mail and then I can shut down or restart. I am not an Apple guy whatsoever. And I, I like, okay. And I think we can cut it off there. Okay. Sounds like bad news. So, so let's try to crystallize this tape. I think what I'm hearing is that whenever mail is running, it, it's a uh, it's not running well at all. Yeah, it sounds like it's hung, and then when you try to quit it, it remains hung and doesn't even finish quitting, and that's bad. Right. So actually, so actually, what 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 VG is doing here uh, is probably the only thing you could do, which is pretty much with any app. Now, I think what he mentioned one one thing which uh, is useful. Is I believe it's a command option escape. I think he mentioned that. And if he didn't, command option escape brings up a dialogue that says force quit applications. And we'll show you uh, the major applications, not all of them, you know, not background stuff, but the most, uh, most user applications that are running. And you can choose to force quit any of them. And actually ones that are in, in a weird state, it may actually say in that window, uh, not running or hung or something. I forget because right now I don't have any that are hung. It, it'll say good. application not responding. I had several right. before. Yep. And I think it's red and, and it also shows it in red to kind of get your attention. And maybe those are things, well, yeah, you either let them hang or you force quit them. Um, the thing that I would suggest in this case, Dave, since it sounds like the UI to uh, mail is totally hosed, <laughs> would be to try to approach it from, from, uh, take a shortcut or like a, a secret path. And I'm going to tell you the secret path here because this is the only thing I could come up with. And if Go. you have something to add to this, it'd be great. So not only can you get to the, the, the various resources that mail accesses, like your messages and the preferences and all that by running mail, but you can also do it through system preferences. And so there's a place to go. In both, I've seen a, a line and mountain line. If you go to system preferences, internet and wireless, mail, contacts, and calendars, you will then see a list of your accounts for all of these services. And one of them should be your email account that you are struggling with with email. So one thing that I could suggest after you try to back up something. So 
If you're listening to this, do not hit the delete button. <laughs> Sit on your hands for a minute. So eventually you want to delete the account from that window because I think, again, if, if you're not getting to the mail app, this is probably the only other way other than directly deleting things, which I I guess is a last resort. This is a, a, a nice orderly way to try to get rid of stuff. So, um, But first you may want to back up your mail. And the thing is, well, if you can't run mail, that's kind of tough. Otherwise, where you want to look if you're using mail app is if you go to your user directory library mail, within that folder will be copies of your mail. And if you can't get to a mail to do a proper export to like an inbox file or something, then look in slash library slash mail from a user directory and back up anything in there that you can, because in, in all likelihood, you, you will be able to recover that at a later date. Um. And to wrap that up, it's probably not so much a problem if it's an IMAP account, because IMAP, it should be stored on the server. Um, but if it's a pop account, then definitely you do want to grab that data from that mail directory. And that's yeah. what I got for that, Dave. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, the Well, I mean, you want to have backups regardless of, of it, so that when you get into a situation like this, you're not scrambling to then back up again. Uh, it is good to have backups. And we've said that before uh, with mail. There is one thing you can do, and that is you can rebuild the mail's the mail's envelope index. It maintains a local index of all of your messages. Um, and and actually, that index, I, uh, it is a local index. But that's not to say that your messages aren't also local. They are. But when you go to search mail uh, or even pull up a mailbox, it often reads from this envelope index because it's faster. And, and so it, it, it's a cache of sorts. It's an index to where all your messages are. So it's not constantly going and looking at your mail folders every time you go there uh, just to speed things up. But if that envelope index is damaged, you might see exactly the symptom that you are talking about here where it can't even pull up your messages to begin with. So uh, deleting that envelope index or forcing the system to recreate it in another way is one is the first thing I would try. Actually, it may not solve this problem, but it's, how does one do this? The best way to do it is using Onyx uh, because it's right there oh. in, in Onyx and you can tell it to clean up the mail envelope index. Quit mail first, then run Onyx and do this. Onyx is available for free. Uh, if you want to do it um, if from the you know, from your computer directly, uh, I believe we have an article here on TMO that I'm looking for that will uh that will do that. And yeah, we do. I'll, I'll put it uh, in the show notes and I'll also put it in the chat room. And at the same time, I will say hello to everyone in the chat room today at MacGeekab.com slash stream. But, uh, but yeah, filling up there, uh, uh, cleaning up that envelope index can, can, can actually do a lot of good for mail. And it's not a bad thing to do occasionally, you know, and when I say really? occasionally, yeah, just as a maintenance thing, I would do it every six months. It's not one of those. You got to do it every day kind of things, but uh, huh. certainly good to just to force mail to kind of keep things clean. So. Yavo. <laughs> well, I have a uh, one mailbox, I think, but, but I think my uh, TMO mailbox, I, I think I have about 11,000 messages in it. Like, yeah. Really. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cleaned it up. Exactly. <laughs> hey, uh, I want to talk about our, uh, you, you, you going to make it? Yep. Okay, good. I'm, I'm, I'm back. Uh, 
Uh, I want to talk about our first sponsor here today, and it's a new sponsor for us here at uh, at Mackey Kev, and I'm very excited awesome. to bring on Squarespace at squarespace.com slash MGG. Uh, the coupon code is MGG1, and I'll tell you that again after I tell you what it's going to do for you. Uh, Squarespace is a... Um, it's a website builder and also a place to host your website. Uh, and you can create all kinds of different websites with this. You just, you log in. In fact, you go to squarespace.com slash MGG. And I did this myself. I had to create a website for our, um, our local middle school, their jazz band, uh, which is huge. Now it's 110 kids, which is awesome. Uh, are going to wow. Disney world later this year to play. And so we needed a website just to coordinate all our local stuff around because, you know, getting 110 kids plus families to and from Disney is a big production. And there's a lot of information we need people to, to get. So I needed to create a site that was sort of the funnel for all of that. And uh, and and so I use Squarespace to do it. I went to Squarespace.com slash MGG and I click get started. And immediately I was designing this website. I mean, it was literally that fast. Um, and I, you know, I created an account through the process, but already I was picking templates and putting names in and, uh, and then suddenly I just had it up and running and, uh, and obviously I needed to, you know, populate with content and, and, and do all of that, but, but getting it up and running was so simple and you can use, uh, they'll give you a custom domain there at, uh, you know, squarespace.com. Uh, but if you want, you can. Use your own domain name uh, as well and, and just map that to the website and it works totally fine. Uh, the templates there are totally customizable. I was able to move things around. You can just drag stuff in. It's totally drag and drop it, in a weird way. I mean, like weird good. You take an image from your mm -hmm. desktop and you just drag it straight into your browser and it's like, OK, it's there. It just it, 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 it's really it. It listen, I've designed plenty of websites. Uh, I certainly know how to do the HTML and all of that, but on this one, I just didn't want to mess with it. I wanted to get it up and running fast. And, uh, not only did I accomplish that, but I got it up and running and it's looking good. Uh, and it really was just meant to be functional, but yet, you know, with, with the templates that they have there at Squarespace, the form was, was right there too. It's, uh, it, you can, you can have, and I, I gotta, I gotta, uh, work with this more, but I can even set it up so that other people that are involved with the jazz band have accounts that can then log in to uh, to this website and edit some of the content, but maybe not edit the form. There's there's different things that you can do so you can have multiple people. Uh, so if you want to set up a family website or, you know, something like I'm doing here with this jazz band thing or whatever you need to do, totally check out Squarespace, squarespace.com slash MGG. Now, the coupon code that you're going to use is MGG one. And you won't see where to enter that coupon code right away, because as I said, you just start heading down the path of creating your website. But once you get it created, then you have a, a, a free trial period going. But if you want to convert to the paid account, which eventually you're going to want to do uh, at that point is when you'll enter the MGG one coupon code. And that gets you a 10 percent discount for. Uh, for your website and and for your hosting and and all of that stuff, so it's it's uh, squarespace.com slash mgg, and uh, and the offer code is as I said mgg one for ten percent off. So it really, it, it you know they say that their their tagline here, which which I like, is Squarespace is everything you need to build exceptional websites, and I, I've got to agree, it's it really really simple to just get it. I mean, it took like 
in less than 10 minutes, I would say even five minutes, I had this thing up and running in a form where I thought, oh, I could actually, you know, do something with this. And that was what I needed. So, uh, so it's check like out. getting your graphics and, and other content that, you know, like, like photos and stuff that, that, you know, you just upload those, just drag them on the template. You just drag them in. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's, it's cool. Yeah. You should play with it, man. And I think, I think Squarespace is going to be a sponsor for a little while. So, uh, so yeah. we're, and we're no, looking, I'm looking right now. I see uh, what's cool. So they got templates for photography, business, uh, but all sorts of different uh, niches there. So it uh, uh, looks really good. And, you know, uh, Techie in the, uh, in the chat room is saying that uh, Squarespace also optimizes your website for mobile. So their templates are built with the idea that someone might browse this with an iPhone and, and they're automatically going to do that responsive thing and, and spit out a mobile version so, so that you're not stuck trying to, you know, navigate um, something that's too big for your phone. So thanks for that techie. It's great to have the chat room involved. I love this. All right. So that's squarespace.com slash M G G. Uh, and with that, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to jump a little bit here. I want to come back to that tip you have, John, but uh, I want to answer Ernesto's question because this one's, this one's actually been sitting in the queue for two weeks. Oh, do I still have it? I do. Um, Ernesto asks, hi guys, I have a new 27 inch iMac on order and I wanted to ask for your opinion. I currently have an early 2009 24-inch iMac. Attached to it are two external hard drives, a scanner, a laser printer, a cable modem, a Sony mini stereo system, and a USB 8-port hub. All of these devices are connected to surge protectors that I've had for about five years or so. With the new iMac, the same devices will be attached. In addition, I have a USB Blu-ray DVD reader and player that will also be connecting. We're both in uh, Southern California, so as far as I know, we don't experience a lot of electrical surges except during the summer because of all the AC use. So, would you be, uh, would your opinion be to keep the surge protectors, swap them out for new ones, or get a UPS for my devices? I'm just not sure what benefits a UPS would provide except providing power if it goes out. Okay, so uh, very quickly, I will answer what these things are, and then we'll talk about why you might want one versus the other. Uh, surge protectors, uh, are, uh, do what they, what they sound like they do when extra power comes in, their job is to dissipate that power and not pass it along to your, uh, computer or other devices that are plugged into it. And that's a good thing. Certainly having too much power suddenly, uh, blasting at your uh, devices is bad. Uh, and to me, that's step one that is basic basic protection yeah you definitely want that but what are you you could get a power strip that has no protection and then if if a surge comes everything's blown up okay that's Mm -hmm. no protection so this is step one and you know if you're gonna buy one of these and i don't think it costs too much more dave is get one that advertises some level of surge protection now it won't protect against direct lightning strike in all likelihood, right. but it's better than nothing. If few things are going to protect against a direct lightning strike, I mean, it, if it comes real close, well, you know, you're, yeah, you're, yeah, you're I've a actually got, boy. I've gotten pretty good here with the lightning, but um, so a UPS uh, that stands for uninterruptible power supply, and as uh, Ernesto alluded to in his question, what a UPS does is it's it's actually another way to think of a UPS is as a battery backup. Uh, you plug that into the wall and then you plug your computer into it. It's like a surge protector, but it's, it's going to be a little bit fatter, a little bit bigger because it's also got a battery in it. 
Uh, and depending on how the thing's laid out, some of the outlets might just be surge protection and some might be surge protection and battery. It's usually pretty clear on the device. But if you're plugged into the battery port, what happens is if the power goes out, current keeps running to your device. Uh, essentially, it's passing through current through the battery so that if current stops, the battery's still there providing current and your computer just keeps humming along. Now, this allows for quite a few things. Number one, it allows for uh, current. Uh, it, it, it can it can help protect against current fluctuations up and down, and it provides a nice steady stream of even current to your devices, which is a good thing. Now, you mentioned you're in, in California. So if the certainly if the power goes out and is out for, you know, five minutes or five hours or five days, uh, and then it comes back on. If you had no no uh, battery backup or no not backup for long enough, uh, your computer is going to shut down and it's just going to be off. And then when the power comes back, it's going to come back and everything's fine. That's not so bad. But what ha- what can happen is what I like to call. I don't like to call it this, but it's what I do call brownouts. Um, and that's when the power dips for a split second and then comes right back. And that can be a really bad thing for uh, electronics, especially those with moving parts like a hard drive. Uh, but but it really can be bad for any electronics because the power doesn't get to dissipate out first before getting, you know, the device gets slammed with power back in. A surge protector cannot protect against that because it can't provide that interim power that a battery backup or a UPS can. So um, so because of that. And because you can get a UPS, it's going to power your computer and maybe a couple of other devices. Uh, you can get them for pretty cheap, you know, a hundred bucks or less, sometimes even in the $50 range. In fact, I just, I, I should, I should uh, rehash this. I, I just bought uh, a couple of new surge protectors. In fact, I've got a newer one on here and a couple of new UPSs. And I think I paid like 46 bucks for the UPS that runs everything in the studio here. And, um, and the cool thing is you can then UP with uh, with USB, you plug that into your Mac and your Mac then knows the status of the UPS and it can shut your Mac down happily uh, before the UPS runs out of power if you're not there. Uh, and that can be pretty cool. So so I you know, for what you're doing there and really for anybody with a computer, you know, for 50 bucks. It's it's that it's a great insurance policy. And actually, it comes with an insurance policy. Um, I, I bought the APC brand, but uh, most every UPS comes with insurance that if your device gets messed up because of um, a power related issue, they'll they'll pay you. And I've actually have firsthand knowledge that that is true. I've, I've had some devices damaged and I've gotten a settlement from the the UPS manufacturer. So. Nice. Yeah. I, I, I must say, I, I don't think I've ever had any device damaged by a surge. Hmm. That I'm aware yeah, of. I, I agree. Yeah. Well, no, I, that's not true. I have, I have had, I have had devices damaged by a surge, but I believe, and I don't, I might be wrong on this, but, but certainly most, if not all of the devices that were damaged by a surge were DC powered devices, which is, you know, the kind of the second part of this conversation our computers, when we plug for power, that's AC, but our Ethernet ports, our cable modem ports, our phone ports, those are all DC power. And that's far more susceptible to surges than AC. Doesn't mean AC can't be, 
be hit. But DC is far more susceptible. So you want those protected too. And your surge protectors and, and UPSs often have pass-through ports for Ethernet and coax. And you want to take advantage and, and use those to protect you. Yeah. Or just don't live in a lightning-prone area like Durham, New Hampshire. <laughs> well, it's not that I'm lightning-prone. It's that my setup is prone to be affected by right. it. Because I have, I have well, cables you got a under big the ground. Metal pipe. Well, you have a big metal pipe outdoors i have no pipe and the lightning i have direct burial cable here oh but you have uh, but you have wires running underground mm-hmm. therefore uh, attracting lightning oh yeah it's yeah you know how, how that's how that works oh yeah the lightning oh, says oh look it's dave's cables let's strike there <laughs> let's let's go yeah no, pretty much yeah 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 so. all right so are we all going right. to you want to do uh, you want to do that little tip about uh, from tannel there john you ready for that one <laughs> no, I had Jeff here. All right, now. go do Jeff. Uh, go. Well, no, I like Tannel. I'm gonna, uh, go, I'm gonna do them. Do them both in whatever order you choose. <laughs> you're freaking me out, man. I know. All right, I got Tannel. So I believe it's Tannel. Yeah, you, you might be right. Tannel, Tannel, whatever. Yeah, right. Hi, Dave and John. I like this one actually. This this kind of has a hacking aspect to it. I think. Hi, Dave and John. Over the last year, there has been a fair amount of discussion about Find My Mac feature. I've discovered, I have discovered something, take two, that to my knowledge has not been pointed out by anybody. Though I think it has. But uh, good tip. Resetting the PRAM switches Find My Mac off. You really? can try this yourself. Reset PRAM and open iCloud preferences pane. And you will see, at least in my case, that Find My Mac is now off. While I have not tested whether after resetting the PRAM and logging into guest account, the Mac is still findable or not, but it seems that we should remember to reactivate Find My Mac after PRAM reset. Also, it seems that activating a firmware password, which disables the ability to reset PRAM, would also be a good idea or not. Regards. Yes. So did you, did you confirm awesome. this to be true? Yes, I did. Oh my gosh, it freaked really? me out, man. Huh? I did it. I At least no on now. Now maybe it's not. Maybe it's only my machine or a certain vintage of machine. But so I have the early 2008 MacBook Pro, 15 inch, and on my machine I confirmed exactly. I did this. So, uh, uh, so I'm running Mountain Lion, and basically I rebooted my machine. Hold down Command Option P R, which resets your parameter RAM. What you do is you hold that down before you hear the chime and then it'll take a little longer for your machine to do whatever it's doing. And then you will hear a chime and that means that it's uh, uh, cleared your parameter RAM. Now, don't believe the old wives tales that you have to do that three times. I think that's a, that, that's hogwash. <laughs> um now, the funny thing is, is that they do have an article talking about resetting PRAM, and they do say resetting PRAM may change some system settings and preferences. Use system preferences to restore your settings. But ah. <laughs> to me, this is a major, uh, well, not a major. I'm not going to raise a big fuss about it, but it's a, it's something people should be aware of. Totally. And actually a, a potential way to circumvent system security. So that's why I think... Uh, uh, it was awesome that Tineal mentioned firmware password protection. What is firmware password protection? You may be asking yourself, Dave. 
or anyone else. And I'm going to tell you what it is. It's a feature you can enable on your Mac, and at least on my Mac, or most Macs that have Mountain Lion or Lion, if you reboot your machine to the recovery partition. In one of the menus, you will be able to enable firmware password protection. And basically what happens is that if you try to activate any uh, somewhat sensitive system-level features, like um, resetting the parameter RAM, <laughs> it asks you for a password first. So, uh, to me, everybody should be, if you know what it is, or even if you don't, should be running firmware password protection. In a nutshell, what firmware password protection does is puts additional barriers in the way of somebody who has uh, stolen or appropriated your machine and wants to get into it. As was pointed out here, if you reboot and you dis and you uh, clear the parameter RAM, find my Mac is off, and well, sorry, that that's no longer a way for you to find your machine. But if you have firmware password, then the the attacker will get frustrated because they can't do. Uh, it basically won't let you enable this option. So, very so good wait, points you, here. we should we should have firmware password protection on. In, in addition to running file vault on our, on our uh, portable machines. Is that right? Cause I don't have it on, on my, like on my MacBook well, Air. I run file vault, but I, you know, I, I had found, and I'm curious about this cause I had found a, an article that was like updated in September and then Apple stopped updating it about firmware password protection. And I thought, well, well maybe I'm good enough with file vault. I'll, all I got to say is Dave, I don't think it hurts. Again, it blocks people from doing things like number one, Obviously, because we just talked about it, uh, resetting the parameter RAM and potentially unsetting Find My Mac. But it also prevents people from doing a lot of other things like booting from a CD-ROM. Okay. And so other things. How do which you, could how lead do you to a potential attack. Oh, well. Oh, I'm sorry. I may not have uh, touched on that. but or Maybe you well, did and so I missed one, it. Sorry. Well, no, no. No, I, I think I, I actually have it in my response. Uh, hmm. So... The easiest way on the latest Macs is when you boot them, boot from the recovery partition. Okay. When you boot from the recovery partition, you will get, it's running a small little program that lets you do a very small subset of, of system administration things. And in one of the menus, I don't think I have it in front of me right now. Um, in one of the menus uh, that you will see if you boot off the recovery partition, or I believe the other option is booting off of your Mac system CD, you will see an option in one of the menus saying enable firmware password protection. Huh. In which right. case, it'll then prompt you for a password. And then if you try to do anything like booting from a CD-ROM or trying to reset parameter RAM, it'll first come up with a big screen that shows a big lock and says, well, give me the password. And then I will let you get past this gate to do this potentially sensitive uh, system operation. Yeah. And Chris A in the chat room says that uh, that if the machine was stolen, they couldn't change or they could change the hard drive, but it wouldn't matter. They still couldn't use the machine. Uh, because firmware password protection is on. Correct. I would say actually thinking like a her hacker security dude. Yeah. If there was a battery in the machine that you pulled it for long enough, it probably would forget that. But yeah, somebody in the, the techie in the chat room was saying that uh, it, on older Macs, this may may not be true with the newer ones, but older ones, uh, if you reset the RAM, like take the RAM out long enough and then put it back in, that would also wipe out the firmware password. So 
Right. So, yeah. but great discussion. There, yeah. are, there are numerous barriers you can put in the way of somebody who has, uh, you know, either is thinking about stealing a machine or has already stolen it. Yep. So, yep. All right. You want to, uh, you want to go to Jeff, John? Oh gosh. You want me to read the question <laughs> while you get it up there? Let me get Jeff here. Okay. Oh, Jeff and uh, Wi-Fi syncing. Yeah. That Jeff? I think so. No way. You put right. it on the list. So. <laughs> All right. Um, and I don't know if I have an answer for this, Dave, but it's a good discussion. All right. So, I might. Hi, Dave and John. Over the last year, there's been a fair amount. Oh, no. What question are you one? reading? <laughs> Hold on. Uh, the wrong one. I got that. Yeah. Right. Hold on. I'll read it. And then you, you take <laughs> over. No, I got it. Okay. I got it. All right. Good day. Is that the one? That is. Good day. <laughs> is he in Australia? Oh, I don't know. Maybe he is. No. Right. Um, I have a personal issue with an older Mac mini running 10.7.4 along with an iPad 3. I'm able to connect to the iPad with the cable and sync. I've checked the box to allow for Wi-Fi syncing. However, the iPad will never switch over to Wi-Fi sync. When you go into settings, it tells you to attach a cable and select the checkbox to allow the Wi-Fi sync. The weirdest part of this is using iTunes and not connecting the iPad to the computer. I can manually perform a sync over Wi-Fi just fine. So iTunes can see the iPad. However, the iPad cannot see iTunes. I can stream just fine. The kicker is that everything worked fine until I updated to iOS 6. I have reset the iPad several times. I've taken uh, I've taken it to Apple. I've even waited for the new version of iTunes. Nothing has worked, and even the Apple folks are confused. Also, to help rule out the mini, my newer MacBook Pro running Mountain Lion X the same way. Ideas? Question mark. Thoughts? Question mark. I don't know. All right. So, so to Jeff, <laughs> of course. Well, I had some thoughts here. So, Jeff, first on the iPad, if you are on the settings screen titled iTunes Wi-Fi Sync, below the Sync Now button, do you see either Sync will resume when computer name is available, or when iTunes is running, do you just see the name of the, your computer and the items to back up on the last sync? If not, this could indicate a network issue since you can see the device via hardware cable but not Wi-Fi. After the iOS update, I had a ter- and then my, my personal tale of woe. After the iOS update, I had a horrible issue with battery life, and a restore got me up and running again. So I'm wondering if just you know this is kind of the hail mary thing is you know do a restore on your device. So I I think he said he may have done this. I, it, it wasn't clear to me if he had. I agree, it wasn't entirely clear, but I think he has. Yeah. Um. So I I've been through this. I I had a problem like this. Well, I got one last thing. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. The last thing is that I do have. So, so the final thing is that, you know, always looking into the uh, Apple support database here, but I did find an article, which uh, let me bring up here that does talk specifically about this. And it is TS 4602. And the title is iTunes 10, five or later troubleshooting iTunes, Wi-Fi syncing. And of the number of items, and it gives you a, a very actually methodical list here of things you can check to uh, troubleshoot Wi-Fi syncing. My suspicion here is that it may be the last item that they showed this. So they show, show not one, not two, not three, but seven items. And the last one is check a firewall settings. To me, it sounds like a network issue because 
if it didn't work at all, then the cable wouldn't work. So to me, it sounds like Wi-Fi for some reason is the issue here. And that's, and, and I sent him a link to this article and I, th- I think he's gone through a, a number of these things to, to try to resolve it. But that's where I will hand the baton to you, Dave. Yeah. So, um, it, it works if you initiate from the Mac, I believe is what he said. Um, but it, he can manually perform it, but, uh, he can't start it from the iPad, which is where it should start, because that means the iPad can start it when you plug in to power at night to charge up or or whatever. And I, I've been through this. I it, in fact, almost exactly the same thing. And I did a lot of these things. And honestly, um, it, it was one of those things that it just started working. I never had uh, full confirmation of, oh, yes, I did this. And then suddenly it started working again. But. I think some of what might be going on, I mean, he said he's doing it on two computers. Now it's po- or it's exhibiting these symptoms on two computers. Now it's possible both of those computers have firewalls on, but um, my, my feeling is that that's probably not the case, or at least for, for the sake of this discussion, let's assume that's not the case and let's dig a little bit deeper. Um, one of the things that it could be is, how your network is set up, you know, is your router for whatever reason, not passing these packets through to your Mac? What kind of router are you using? You know, is it an Hmm. Apple router or is it some third party router? And, and one thing to try would be on your Mac, you can actually set up your own Wi-Fi network by sharing your internet connection. Assuming your Mac is plugged in via ethernet, uh, you can go into sharing and say share internet connection over Wi-Fi. And then you can connect your iPad to your Mac and your Mac then acts as the network access point. So there, you're not going through any other filters. It's just talking directly to your Mac and your Mac now is the wireless access point. So that's one thing that I would I would definitely try uh, just to rule out that it's any of your network hardware. Now you've got, you know, your Mac and your iPad in theory, anyway, talking directly to each other. And, uh, and, and I, that, I would definitely start there. But like I said, my guess is that there's something on your network. That's not allowing this to happen. Um, you say you've reset the iPad several times. One other thing to test is it could be something in your settings on your iPad. And if you're resetting it and then restoring from a backup each time, that in and of itself could be causing this problem. Again, it's not entirely clear what you've done, but but one thing to test would be re- reset your iPad, don't restore from a backup, and then uh, or at least don't restore from a backup yet. You always can you can always restore from a backup later on, but uh, but get it set up and test that Wi-Fi sync initiated from the iPad to see if that's going to kick it off on the computer. Um, but uh, but yeah, those are, that, you know, and, and I, the, the other thing that I would suggest is exactly what you tried already, which is try it on a different computer. Make sure the problem is with your iPad or rather not with your computer. And you've done that. So now it's either the network or the iPad. Um, my guess is it's not the iPad uh, because the iPad works fine wirelessly uh, everywhere else. But it could be the, the settings on your iPad. And that's why you want to do that uh, that clean restore and and try it right there without changing any of your settings or restoring to old settings. That's my story. And you know while Better we're stick to it, buddy. Yeah, 
while we're on the uh, the, the network subject, um, especially since I'm going to be talking about networks, Jeff has a uh, sorry. We just answered Jeff's question, so hopefully Jeff has an answer as well as a question. Chad <laughs> has a question. He says, "I recently switched from Comcast cable uh, to DSL provided by my local phone company. I have a Buffalo router that runs DDWRT, uh, and that is my router and wireless access point." With Comcast, they supplied a cable modem, which acted as a bridge so that the uh, Buffalo router got the public IP address. And that's pretty normal. Uh, Now that I have switched over to DSL, the only thing they provide me with is a router. And what that means is that it gets the public IP address and then passes that along. But he wants to use his Buffalo router. uh, And so now he's got a situation where he has two routers in line both acting as routers and that that's bad you don't want to have that and chad knows this he says uh what i've currently done is i set up my cable modem router to pass all the traffic through to my buffalo but it's still acting as a router is it possible uh to have this dsl router act as a bridge not a router and pass the public ip onto my buffalo uh and and so the question, the answer there is um, possibly I looked up. Uh, he told us the model of his of his router. And I, well, I looked I to looked, me. The big question, Dave, to, to, to back up here. For yeah. Some who may have no idea what we're talking about. Yep. Why is this a problem? And I think if you want to boil this down, it's that any pretty much any piece of network hardware that you get from whether it be Comcast or opt online like I have, or whoever you have, Dave, um, there are two sides to it. One is the side that is exposed to the internet and that should have an IP address. And then it's the side that you see. And the thing is the negotiating between those two and how they, how they work or do not work with one another, I think is, is the whole issue here. And it sounds like what they did is, is did a switch on him as far as the capabilities of the device that he was given and that now it's, well, should it be a device that faces the internet and, you know, says, here's my IP or do do we bring that back or forth? I'm just trying to, I'm going to, I'm going to boil. I'm glad you interrupted me because I wasn't, I, I, I should boil further because I I, didn't. Yeah. Well, boil further because I think I'm, I made just a last minute attempt at trying to quantify this, but, but, but please distill it further. But I think we, we should talk about why, why is this even a problem? Yeah. So you only want one device managing your network and the device that manages your home network is called a router and it lives in what's called router mode. It is set up to do exactly what John said. It's set up to talk to the public internet on behalf of all of the other devices you have in your house And then on the other side, it talks to all of your devices in the house. It gets them set up with their uh, IP addresses. It manages your house and manages the flow of traffic to and from the Internet uh, with your house. And a router does its best work when it truly can talk one on one without anything in between it to your devices on the uh, on your local network. And then also at the same time can be the have a direct path out to the Internet. That's and, and typically that's what happens. Um, and, and that's what Chad used to have is he had uh, his Buffalo router talking plugged into his cable modem, but his cable modem wasn't trying to do anything smart. It was just his bridge to the Internet. Now he has this DSL 
device and this DSL device is acting as a router trying to manage a network. Now, that's a good thing for someone who's just getting started and doesn't already have all the hardware and doesn't already have things set up. But for those of us that do, and you might be in this, in fact, many of you are probably in this boat. You want to have, say, your time capsule, your airport extreme, or in case like Chad or me, you might have a Buffalo router or a Linksys router. And you like you're used to the way it manages your network. You want to keep things that way. But suddenly now you're forced to have this other device between your router and the Internet. And some there, there's some bad things that can happen when you have two devices trying to manage one network um, and, and it can get very confusing. It's why we say when you have uh, if you if you want to have another uh, uh, router there as a wireless access point, you want to put it in what's called bridge mode. And that's essentially essentially dumb mode. In that it's not trying to manage your network. It's just trying to provide a service and pass data through. So what Chad wants is he wants his Buffalo router to remain his router. And he wants this device from the DSL company to be a bridge. And that's really the trick. Uh, and, and to kind of continue where I was when I'm glad you interrupted me, John, uh, I had found some documentation for this particular um router that his DSL company said about putting it into bridge mode. And that's really the trick is cool. find out it, and And you're going to have to use Google or, or perhaps look at the manual or, or find Google or find the manual via Google, right? Find out how to set your router in bridge mode. So you only have one router, preferably the one that's connected, you know, like I said, to the internet and to the, to your internal network as the router. And, uh, and that's the trick. And if you can't do that, then uh, what you're going to have to do is do the reverse. Let the DSL device be your router and then set your Buffalo Ugh. device into bridge mode. Yeah, but exactly, John, that's like, oh, that, you know, that's oh, not. I don't want to do that. And, and no, it, you don't to, be clear, it. to be clear, bridge mode is basically making whatever device it is into a virtual cable in that it has no intelligence. It's not handing out IP addresses. It's just sitting there passing traffic along which yeah in a lot of cases is exactly what you want it to do it's like don't be smart like dave said don't be smart just shut up and just be a virtual cable between here and there and and that's uh and that one thing i will say you know when i said it's in dumb mode and you're saying this the one thing that i will clarify is you can have a router that you put into bridge mode that bridges your ethernet to your wireless acting as a wireless access point. So it is doing some smart stuff. It's just not doing any of the routing and, and to get one step deeper, the thing you want to turn off is DHCP and well, two things you want to turn off DHCP. And right. usually when you turn off DHCP, it also turns off NAT NAT and NAT is the thing that, that, that does all this smart routing and you just want both of those off. Oh, you're picking on Nat, man. I am. You keep doing that. You keep picking on yes. poor Nat. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, somebody has But I'm to. with you. The yeah. problem is if two devices are trying to take a IP address from one side and to redistribute them, mm -hmm. and actually the, the time, uh, time capsule or uh, Airport Extreme does a good job of this, and that if you try to do a bonehead move like this, it will say, oh, gee, by the way, I detected double Nat. Yeah. Um, 
what's wrong with you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, basically, yeah. it's basically, and I'm not sure if other products do this, but at least Apple realizes. Now, again, you know, warns you. You, you could say, yeah, okay, well, I, I really meant to do this stupid thing, but <laughs> I don't know. I, I assume other products will warn you as well because it's usually uh, an indication that you're either trying to do something too smart or you, you, you screwed something up. I agree. Yep. All right. Uh, we're yeah. running toward the end, but we've got, uh, I think we got three or four cool stuff found items that I would love to get to. One of them is really? cool, cool stuff found reprise. I will call it because it's definitely something we mentioned, but it was, I believe last March or may, I can't remember, but, uh, it it was May of 2012 that we mentioned this, but Dan wrote in with it. He had never heard of it, which tells, <laughs> well, but th- you know, that's reasonable, right? Not everybody listens to every show. And in fact, we have lots of new listeners, so it's okay to reprise these things every now and then. Uh, this one that Dan says is he says, I just found this app called bartender that does something I've always wanted. And I had to share it with you. It lets me hide or rearrange any menu bar item I want, including spotlight and notification center. I haven't even had it on my machine for more than a minute. I was just so excited to share it with you guys. But by default, it adds a menu bar icon that when clicked will reveal a secondary menu bar containing the items that you've chosen to hide or store there. You can also hide bartender's menu bar icon if you want. So you can uh, clicking on it will just real reveal the hidden items in the menu bar. Uh, it sounds like it would be great use for not only hiding items I hardly ever need, but also for keeping things like fast user switching icon from cluttering my menu bar while still providing relatively quick access to them. It, it, and since we talked about this in May, thank you, Dan, for sending this through. I have had this on my MacBook Air where my menu bar is small. And I had a lot of times where I couldn't get to things in my menu bar because the menus take precedence and I didn't have enough room for both. And bartender mm-hmm. lets you just tap a little thing and it, it drops down. It's almost like a secondary menu bar. That's only open when you've tapped on bartender and it lets you have access to all these other things that you've put out there. It, it's totally invaluable. I agree. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's uh, 15 bucks um, from, uh, I believe it's MacBartender.com. I got to find that, but uh, yeah, MacBartender.com. That's what you want. And uh, and you can see a little demo of it right when, when right when you go to bar, macbartender.com. So uh, so thanks, Dan, for sending that through. It's totally it, it's it, as far as I'm concerned, it's mandatory on every laptop uh, because, you know, huh. it's just how life is. Yeah. OK. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. Let's see. You want to. I Well, I have a quick shortcut from Philip. Do you want. Are you going to want to do Rick today, John, after I do Philip no. here? OK. All right. No. So. Uh, with Philip, we have a uh, Phil, um, Philip sent in a tip that was so good that we published it at TMO. Uh, and then I found out we'd already published it. So it's yet, yet another one of those things that we don't always catch everything we all do. And that's why it's good to talk about him again. It says, I just discovered by accident this pretty cool tip in mail on iOS. So and this works on the iPad or iPhone or iPod touch uh, that I have not read or seen anywhere. If you tap and hold on the compose new mail button, a screen will pop up showing all your draft emails and it gives you a button to go directly to your drafts folder. It works on the iPad and iPhone. And he's totally right. You just hold it down and boom, your drafts come up. You don't have to go navigate through. Uh, They're just right there. So uh, thanks for sending that through too, man. That's a That's a good, good little tip. So we share that. 
Why? Uh, why? <laughs> I I use drafts in iOS a lot. I wind up getting, you know, I get halfway through a message and it's like, oh, I want to copy something from another email or or what what have you. And, and uh, you know, because everything in iOS is modal, you've got to put the message away before you can go look elsewhere in that same app. Mm. So it's uh it's good stuff. So that's Dan. That's Philip. Uh, we have a plug-in from Andy. Uh, speaking of mail, this is probably one of those that I might have mentioned in my tip, uh, in my thing, in my, uh, it's not, I'm not mentioning it in my thing on uh, Thursday, uh, the rapid fire thing, but uh, it's good stuff. He says, you may remember my issues. He emailed us a while back. <laughs> we do. <laughs> no, he, he was having problem that uh, if he emailed people, uh, from Apple mail and was you and the recipient was using outlook mail. Uh, they, they would see things either as too small or attachments would come through really weird and stuff just wasn't right. Oh yeah. Well, and it this sounds was a, like an HTML issue. Yeah, it was, it was because I know both platforms support mime, uh, mm-hmm. mime, which is, in my book is enhanced email, which includes you doing all sorts of, stupid stuff with fonts and, and yeah. all that. So. Well, and that's it. And, and outlook would show things at this default font that was really, really tiny and, and your signature would be huge and all this stuff. Well, this plugin that he found totally solves it. And the plugin is called uh universal mailer plugin. And uh, he sent us a little article about it as well as a, um, a link to the plugin itself. So we will certainly put that in the show notes. It's excellent stuff. And I believe it's free. I think, yeah, it's donate donation So you can just go and, and grab the, uh, grab it right from the, the webpage, but definitely, you know, it's, it, I haven't played with it enough to know if I want to use it constantly, but I did test it and it, it works the way it's, uh, it said, I just got to see if it messes with things that I send to Mac users, but, uh, I don't think it does. Huh. Well, I'm I'm of the mind. I try to send every email I have as plain text. And the assumption with this plugin, if you send as plain text, Outlook sees it just fine. The assumption with this plugin is you're not sending plain text. You're sending rich text with images or fonts or what have you. And and so if you're doing if you're if I were a rich text mailer, I would have would leave this thing installed all the time. I'm just trying to figure out. Yep. You know, I think it converts everything to rich text, and mm. that part of it is the one that I, makes me scratch my head. I, so. I, I don't see why anybody needs more than Courier. Well, but see, that, people? That's, Come on. I mean, that's it, the beauty. That's the beauty of plain text is you might like <laughs> to see your mail in Courier, but I like to see it in, you know, whatever, Lucida Grande. And if we're sending plain text back and forth, then you and I see it in the fonts of our choosing because we're just sending text. Mm. There's no uh, form. It's all about choice. It's That's all cool. about choice. Yeah. And it's simply it makes it simple and it makes it so that problems like this don't happen. But if you are a rich text type person and you like to have your fonts and your bolds and your pictures, then inline pictures rather, uh, then this is the plugin for you. Or just cut it out. All right. <laughs> just so, knock it off. That's uh, right. So to wrap things up here, I think uh, Sarah, Sarah has a quick one here. Yeah, go. So Sarah is someone that, uh, uh, I follow and I, I believe follows me on Twitter and she pointed out something in a recent tweet that I thought was kind of, uh, I don't know if it's unnerving, but it's interesting. So Java, we've been talking about Java Yep. and she noticed this and I verified this um, Chrome, which some people really like as a browser on the Mac, uh, Google Chrome 
as it turns out, is a 32-bit browser. Guess what 32-bit browsers don't support? Java 7. So um. actually, if you if you go to, if you run, and I you see the picture in uh, our pre-show stuff here, Dave. If you run Chrome and you go to java.com and you try to verify your browser version, it will say Chrome does not support Java 7. Java 7 only runs on 64-bit browsers. Oh. And uh, guess what? That kind of means that Chrome is not a 64-bit browser. Though I hear that there are efforts to make it so. So huh. just a little follow-up to our little discussion about yeah. Java. In, oh, that's uh, fascinating. Yeah. I had no so, idea uh, Chrome was a 64-bit browser. Uh, th- sorry. I had no idea that was Chrome was not a 32-bit a six- browser. Yes. Right. Huh. Well, I even look too. I'm like, huh? Because I, 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 I don't run it. To me, it's my third attempt. So I run yeah. Safari pretty much pretty much for everything. If something doesn't work, then I go to Firefox. And then if it really doesn't work, then I'll go to Chrome. The one nice part uh, about that, Chrome that, is it embeds its own version of flash. So you don't have, uh, if you, if you're someone that's just like, I know Jeff Gamut here at TMO is mm. uh, like religiously against installing flash on his machine, but he leaves Chrome on there. If he needs to see something in flash, it's, it's right there. So. Oh, Oh wait, Jeff, right. Gamut. Yeah. 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 He's just, he's, he's nuts. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, we're, we all have our quirks. It's cool. It's no problem. <laughs> and his quirk is flash. That's it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I have uh, no problem with it. It just no. crashes Safari all the time, but uh, you know, I don't leave a tab open with flash in it. In fact, I, I tend to run, especially on my, on my laptop for sure. Uh, I run the, how it's it i think it's called the click to plugin now it used to be called click to flash but um right 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 but now it's click to plugin and it it it's good i but you know click to flash is uh here let me find it i i will i will publish a link to it in our show notes and in the chat room and i believe with that it is time to see you if think we can so? bring the band in i do I do. It's getting cold. Oh, I had one more. Uh, okay. You got a quick one. Quick. Very quick. Okay. So we were talking about downloading um, uh, from the app store. Remember I talked about error 13. Yes. Well, Dean wrote in and Dean brought up a very good point. So as some of you know, Mac OS 10 is based on Unix. I think uh, specifically FreeBSD or the variants thereof. Well, I, I thought it was OpenBSD actually. Uh, something BSD. BSD was definitely in it, which BSD is Berkeley System Distribution, I believe. So yes. Berkeley and all those hippies out in California uh, were responsible for much of what was folded into Next Step and eventually. Yeah, OS that's 10. true. Yeah, you might be right about it being FreeBSD. Yeah, okay. Yeah, go ahead. But anyways, a lot of these Unix environments incorporate a error file, which is near and dear to my heart because I'm a software developer. So anyways, on a lot of Unix systems, if you go to slash, uh, where is it? Okay, the name of the file. Uh, I'm sorry. So if you get a slash USR slash include slash sys slash error dot H. That is air, one of air, the No, old, it's error air no, right? E-R-R-N-O dot H. Yep. You're correct. Um, That is a file that contains a lot of the error codes that are used to this day by many Unix software. And so basically what Dean suggested is, well, you know what? Error 13 may be uh, 
And I think it was permission denied. I thought 13 was file not found. Or something on the, on the file level. Yeah. He, he, he said it was permission denied. So, although he talked about Mac error as being a thing you could do from the terminal to find out what an error code number yes. means in English. Yes. This error number file, errno.h file, also contains some uh, tribal knowledge of what now, did you? Mean. I have to ask you, did you find this file on your Mac? Because I just copied and pasted it from his email and it doesn't exist on my Mac. In fact, there is no sys folder inside user, user include. So, um, on my system, I think I did because I think I've installed some of the developer tools. Oh, so. okay. Okay. Yeah. This does not have the developer tools on it. So, all right. Well, that Let me look. CD slash USR. Yeah. CD slash, uh, what's no, that? not slash just CD include and do an LS there and tell me what you see. CD include. Yeah. Oh, right. CD slash USR slash include and do an LS. Right. I that see. is not on this machine. You don't even have an, a user include folder? Nope. I have a user, but yeah, I have only sure. X11 bin lib local share. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. Yeah. So I'm not sure where that erno.h thing is. Well, no, if you do, if you do a Google on that, you'll, you'll find it. All right. E-R-R-N-O.h, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's if you do a, a locate on your Mac for erno.h, you'll find a lot of them, but they're in weird different places. So I don't think they're the system-wide one. I mean, that's that's right. sort of a standard thing that you would bake into any of your Right, frameworks. so it's, a, it's something that most people probably won't find on their computer, but it is the basis of what is... I don't think any of basis of what is... But I, well, I, I beg to differ, but I think it's it's the basis of the software that was made to build your operating system. So there. Okay. Yeah. The only place I'm finding it on my Mac is inside uh, slash applications. Yeah. And it's, it's cool. buried into app uh, bundles. So where's Kirshen? Kirshen. <laughs> she would find it. <laughs> She's one of our developer uh cool developer people absolutely they're part of the mac geek cab family but part of the mac geek cab crew that's right family and you or can posse you how can, about posse you can visit the mac geek cab crew of course in the chat room every sunday that we record uh, at macgeekab.com slash stream the next show will be uh as as we said live from the show floor we're doing it at 1 p.m next saturday which is february 2nd uh 1 p.m pacific time i don't know if that one will be streamed i can't promise anything officially i'm supposed to say it's definitely not going to be streamed uh but you know how we are but we'll we'll smuggle in the uh yeah we'll see what we can do so uh we'll get our minions to help us that's right yes that's right yes so we'll see what happens um but uh but typically you can find us there you can also find the mac geekab crew in the mac geekab crew forums at tmo and uh and that's always a fun place to hang out too i don't know why this is so quiet with the music here oh i do know why it's so quiet because I don't have I hear a compressor it. on. Yeah, but it's it, the level was in a weird spot. Yeah, I'm used to these things. I, I knew what was happening. All right. Uh, feedback at MacGeekGub.com is the address that you can email just about anything you'd like to. Questions, tips, really? pictures, screenshots. 
answers. Cookies, brownies. Sure. And feedback at MackieGab.com. Don't forget. Feedback at MackieGab.com. You can also call us at 206-666-GEEK, which, John, is 43. 35? That's right. And uh, you can see the show notes at MacGeekab.com. You can Skype us to MacGeekab, and that'll send in your audio question right to us. John, I mentioned Twitter at the beginning of the show, but why don't you you remind him of Twitter now? We do the Twitters. We are fully committed to the Twitters. I am John Efron. He is Dave Hamilton. That other guy is Pilot Pete. The podcast is MacGeekab, and the publication is MacObserver. That's right. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash MacGeekab. And with that, I think it is time to move on here. I would like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast. He converts this show and all of our shows to AAC to have all those great little chapters. I'd like to thank Corey Imdick and his team over there at BitSuites for creating the Mac Geek Gab app, which you can find on the iOS app store. I'd like to thank Cashfly Hosting, cashfly.com, for providing all the bandwidth. And our podcast marketplace sponsors Squarespace, Text Expander from Smile, Gazelle, BB Edit from Barebones Software, all here through Backbeat Media. And I'd like to say that no performance-enhancing drugs were used in the making of this <laughs> podcast, as far as you know. But along those lines, I have some very valuable advice to share with you, especially if you're traveling or or anything like that, don't get caught. Made up.